Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Today, <laughs> we're going to go back to 2007-2008, 18 months worth and I'm going to be asking you, if you brought a Bible, to open to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We're going to be looking today at His Gospel, My Gospel. His Gospel, My Gospel. It's my favourite subject to preach on. Jesus. To preach on the good news of who Jesus is and what He's done. So I want to give today an overview of the book of Romans from beginning to end. And we'll start here with the top verses uh, in chapter 1. This is what I like to do. If you're not familiar with uh, the church environment today, I'm going to read from the Scriptures. And so this thing here is called a Bible. It gets its uh, word, as almost everything does, Greek, from the Greek, Biblia. And Biblia simply means a collection of books. Okay? So the Bible is one book. It is the Bible, but it's also a collection of books. This is actually 66 different books by over 40 different authors, written in three different languages on five different continents over a period of about 1,500 years. It is incredible. It is the most widely circulated, criticised, critiqued and cited literary work of all human history. And today around the planet, as today unfolds, as the earth spins, millions of people are going to be opening this book and versions of it and listening to these wonderful historic words that come alive off the pages because the same God who wrote this 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 years ago is alive and well today, breathing on his eternal word and bringing it alive to people and changing and transforming hearts. And so that's what we hope happens today. If you want that to happen to you, put your hand on your heart and say, Lord, you are a good teacher today. I open my heart to you. I open my mind to you. We sit at your feet and we say, good teacher, teach us. We are listening. We will do what you tell us to do. We will eat your words and we will delight in your truth today. And we do this gladly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's do it. This is the book of Romans written in the first century and uh, self-explanatory. It's written by a guy called Paul who is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, but who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the nations, Gentiles, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles, those nations, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting bit of first century trivia. When you read Paul's letters particularly, he is writing to churches mostly that are multi-ethnic, which was 
uh, not necessarily rare in the Roman Empire, but it was rare that Jewish people and non-Jewish people would come together to worship God because throughout Hebrew history, there was very strict rules about how you can worship, okay? And so this was kind of a new thing, Jewish people, non-Jewish people coming together. And this little phrase here in this verse where it says, grace and peace to you, grace, uh, or the Greek word is charis, okay, was a very common form of uh, greeting in the Greek world, in the Roman world. So they'd be walking down the street, you and I would say, g'day, they would say, grace, Grace to you, charis to you. It's a way of saying favour, okay? Be blessed, you're awesome, have a great day, all right? Charis, grace. The Jews, on the other hand, that's what the Greeks would say. The Jewish people, however, their common greeting was the word shalom, which means peace. And so Paul reinvents this kind and comes up with his own greeting, grace and peace. And it's kind of his subtle way of saying, I'm writing to both Greek people and Jewish people in that context, you're all in this together. Okay, it's very subtle, but it's there. You can talk about that over lunch. All right. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Context here is the inhabited world. Okay, this church, in this letter was written in the mid-50s, so about 20-something years after Jesus had gone, and already the fact that the message of Jesus had got to Rome, the capital city of the known world, was amazing. Everyone was talking about it. Wow, can you believe that what happened in Jerusalem made its way all the way to Rome? And so he's saying the whole Roman world is talking about the fact that Christianity, or Jesus' message, has reached there. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that at now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come and see you. Paul is a traveling preacher. Okay, The fancy word is apostle. And as he's traveling around, he's going from city to city, and he wants to get to Rome. That's kind of like prize A for him, because as I said, it's the capital of the known world. He wants to get there to meet these people. And he tells us why. I long to see you, so I may impart to you a spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I, after all, am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. It's really interesting here. In these verses, Paul links the idea of being obligated. I'm coming to you because I'm obligated. All right? This is a principle we call stewardship. Okay? I'm coming to you because I owe you something. The idea of stewardship is that you have something in your possession that doesn't belong to you. You have something in your possession that's not your possession. So if you come to me later and you say, look, Chad here, I've got 10 bucks and that's for Jay because I, whatever. Um, if, as soon as I take that $10 for you, I'm obligated to hand it to Jay. Okay, I'm, under, I'm obligated to her. And Paul's the same. He's like, I'm obligated to come to Rome. Why? Because he had a message. And that message was not just for him. 
God had given him a message for other people. And it's one of the reasons that he went out of his comfort zone to travel over and over again to meet people he'd never met, okay, because he had something that wasn't just for him. Okay, so there is a place in the Christian life for a healthy dose of obligation, for a healthy dose of duty, as it were, because we've got something that's not just for us. Okay, we've got something too good to keep to ourselves. God has entrusted us with something to share with others. And this is what Paul brings out right here in the book, which is all about grace. He starts by saying, I'm obligated. That's why I'm coming to see you. Verse 16, famous verse here, two more and then we're done. For I am not ashamed... (laughs) Well, you know, you know what that means. For I am not ashamed of this gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation or wholeness to everyone who believes, first for the Jews and then the Gentiles. And that was the historical context there. The message of Jesus started off within Jesus' ethnic community, the Jewish people. That's primarily where it started. And then it exploded well beyond the borders of that ethnicity to the rest of the world. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from beginning to end, first to last, A to Z. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In the gospel, a right-standing relationship with God is offered. And it is not us being right before God because we've earned something. It's the gift of God giving us right-standing with himself. Pure, nothing in the debt account, okay? Debt's white clean. God gives us the gift of righteousness that we can access him freely and wholly. That is part of the good news of the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this incredible message. Everyone say, gospel. Hey, gospel is a bit of a word we bander around a bit. It's one of those Christian terms and it's worked its way into our culture. Um, A lot of people, every now and again, you hear someone say, don't take that as gospel. Okay, so it's kind of a way of saying this is really true. But the word gospel just literally means good news. And I put out a challenge to you guys, uh, those who are here with us back in 2007, 2008, to try to work out a way to articulate what the gospel actually is. Because one of the things that can happen when you're in a cultural group, a subculture, in your sporting group or in a school environment or a work environment or a certain industry, we all develop our own buzzwords. And we, within our buzzing circle, knows what that word means. And you know when you join, sometimes you get a new job and they're just full of acronyms and people are going, oh yeah, that's the CDA or that's the FPTQ or whatever. And everyone's got their own buzzwords of what that means, okay? Every industry has that and the church is no different. We have our own buzzwords and sometimes we don't stop to think of what that actually is. We kind of assume the knowledge, okay? And the gospel is such an important thing. The word just came up a good half a dozen times there in those verses. What actually is the gospel? How would you articulate it? If someone was to ask you, what do you mean, gospel? I grew up in a church here in Victor called the Christian Gospel Centre. I think it's a great name for a church. It is the centre of a Christian gospel. But what does gospel actually mean? And back in 2007... I sort of came up with my own slogan or sentence that I felt encapsulated the essence of the gospel. And it goes something like this. The gospel is the good news. It's not a good idea. It's not a good advice. It's not a good thought. 
okay? It is good news. It's an announcement. The gospel is good news. The gospel is the good news that the person of Jesus makes it possible for all people to participate in the presence of God, knowing God, and the provision of God, okay? Both now and for all eternity. The gospel is good news that the person of Jesus makes it possible, possible, invitations open, for all people to participate in the presence of God and the provisions of God, both now and for all time and eternity. And that's kind of the best way I think I can articulate it. I want to share with you today, in and around these verses, on His gospel that becomes my gospel. His good news that becomes my good news. Seven things from these opening seven verses. Let's have a look at verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of? First point is this. The gospel is God's. The good news of who Jesus is is God's news. He thought it up. He created it. He cultivated it. He articulated it. He demonstrated it. He gave it to us. He orchestrated it. He empowered it. He fulfilled it. And he revealed it to humanity. The gospel is not a nice idea that somebody came up with because they were you know, smoking magic mushrooms on an island somewhere and had some apparition. Ooh, okay, No. The gospel is God's good news he came up with this whole scheme. He came up with this whole story. The gospel is God's. It is his idea. It is his story. And that's one of the reasons that the guy who wrote this letter, Paul, was so passionate about defending the gospel. Now, when I say the word defending, don't think like you know, Paul was defending you know, a little weakling from bullies at school. Paul didn't go around saying, oh, no, 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 no. please take it easy on the gospel. He's got hard feelings, you know. It wasn't that. Paul was very strong about defending the purity of the gospel message because he knew that if the river, as it were, of God's good message was tainted there in the first century, it would echo down throughout the centuries to come to us and that message would be lost. He defended the purity of the gospel message. And so when you read books like Galatians, he says, guys, listen, stop changing the good news that I shared with you. Because what I shared with you was not my idea, it was from God. It was God's idea. What Jesus did was not something that man thought up. Okay, It wasn't something man thought up. It was God's idea to send Jesus. It was God's idea that he be executed on a cross. It was God's idea that every sin would be forgiven on account of his name. This was God's idea. Stop changing the message. Stop adjusting it because it doesn't fit your scheme of things, which is why Paul has to say later, I'm not ashamed of this. There are reasons every now and again to be embarrassed by the gospel because it just seems too good to be true. Surely we've got to add a little bit of something to it. To, no, 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 no. It is so good. It is so good. It is so true. Every sin taken away because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross on our behalf and we say, yes, I receive. Okay, that's offensive to people, particularly grow up in a religious system, who are trained to think, I've got to do something to make God happy with me. Come on, I've got to be good. I've got to be a good person to make God happy with me. Now, Jesus says, I'll be the good person on your behalf. Your job is to believe that I am your goodness. 
Okay, believe that I am your righteousness and receive that as a gift that you don't deserve. But I do deserve it because I am good. No, even the self-righteous are cut down. Okay, because no one is good enough to be God's standard of purity. Only Jesus could fulfill that standard. And the gospel is great news because Jesus did it all for us. Our job is to receive. Paul said, listen, this is God's idea. Stop messing around with the gospel. It is God's idea. Some people say, listen, all religions are the same. Christianity, like all religions, it's just a mountain. You know, <clears throat> God's at the top, humans are down the bottom, and we're all trying to walk our way up the hill to reach God. And Christians are walking this path, other people are walking this path, and other religions this path, but it's all the same, mate. It's all the same. You're all just earning, just trying to get your way to God. Christianity is not like that at all. The total scheme of Christianity, the message of the gospel, is that completely inverted. We are not trying to work our way up to God. God came down the mountain to us. God came down the mountain and he reached down into the depth of the pits that we were stuck in and pulled us out. Christianity is not about us reaching up. It's about God reaching right down and pulling us up. It is good news. It is his idea. There's an old story of C.S. Lewis. Many of you know him. He wrote the... Well, you don't know him personally, probably. Some of you might be old enough. Um, <clears throat> he wrote the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, Narnia, all those stories. Okay? He was actually very creative, but also very intellectual. And he was at a forum once, a synopsis or whatever, and whole people from different religions were talking, and they were trying to work out what distinguishes each religion from the other. And someone turned to C.S. Lewis and goes, What do you reckon? What distinguishes Christianity from all other religions? And he says, Well, it's easy. It's one word. Grace. Grace. You guys are all trying to climb the mountain. You guys are all, all got your seven steps to get up there. God came to us in the person of Jesus. He, it is his gospel. It is his good news. And we dare not change that. And everybody said... Amen. Verse 2. The gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures... The second thing about the gospel we need to know is this. The gospel is the fulfillment of a long prophetic history. The message of Jesus did not begin in the first century with the nativity. The message of Jesus did not begin with the Catholic Church, with the first Christmas, with the book of Acts. The message of Jesus goes all the way back, Jesus himself said this, to a guy called Moses. 1,400 years earlier, because Jesus said, if you listen to Moses, you'd believe in me. Because Moses, way back here, wrote about me. He said, another prophet like me is coming, you better believe in him. Our history goes right back to Moses. In fact, our history goes well beyond that. Our history goes way back to a guy called Abraham, hundreds of years before Moses. Because the Bible says over here in Galatians, Paul says, God preached the good news of Jesus to Abraham way back then. Way back, 2,000 years, before Jesus came on the scene, God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you and bless all the nations because of you. And the Bible says that was the gospel declared. In fact, you could even say the gospel was first declared well before Abraham because the first time we actually hear the gospel of Jesus preached is in a garden called Eden where God comes to a snake, as the story goes, and says, listen, that woman, Eve, her, you are going to bite her heel. No, it doesn't say that. He says, her seed, the seed of the woman, you will bite his heel, 
but he will crush your head. Your seed. Now, you don't need to, me to draw you a diagram, a sex ed diagram to know that women don't have seed, they have eggs. But nevertheless, God said to Eve, your seed. God right then was prophesying the virgin-born son, the seed of the woman, not the seed of Adam, the seed of the woman, that individual, he said, will be bitten on the ankle, but he will use that very same ankle to crush the head of Satan. Thousands of years, however long it was, later, Jesus comes along, virgin-born son, and he is crucified on a mountain called Golgotha. Golgotha means the place of the skull. Jesus crushed the head, the skull of Satan as he hung on the cross and fulfilled that gospel proclamation right back there in the Garden of Eden. Christianity is not like a new religion on the scene. Are oh, you ignorant Christians? Don't you realise that Christianity is just a new religion? You know, and all that if you believe in Jesus, then you're negating all the value of the Aztecs and the Egyptians and the, the, um, the ancient Indians and Chinese civilizations. What about, what about them? Christianity is a new religion on the scene. No, 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 listen. Jesus might have only came to earth 2,000 years ago, but it is the fulfillment of a long prophetic history. And so Paul says here in verse 2, put it back, keep the verses up, verse 2. Paul says, this is the gospel that was proclaimed all the way through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. When Paul speaks about the Scriptures, he's speaking about the Old Testament. The whole Bible speaks of him. And this is why it's so important for us to be an all-Bible people. We just decided that in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to revisit and repost uh, and re-encourage a new community, hopefully, to get on board and read the Bible in a chronological fashion this year, in 2020. One of the best things that meant a number of us here did two years ago is we got a plan together of how to read the Bible story and to watch it unfold as it happened, where you read the historical stories and insert the prophets and insert the Psalms and insert the epistles in the period in which they were written and happened. So you can stand back and you can see the big story of the Bible unfold. All right? It is really important. One of the things you learn from that is the message of Jesus is proclaimed all the way through from start to finish. It is the fulfillment of a long prophetic history. Verse 3. This is the gospel regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, we're reminded of that at Christmas time, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. His name is Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord. Third thing is this. Number one, the gospel is God's gospel. Number two, it has a long prophetic history. Number three, the gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. There are many names given to the gospel in the New Testament. We've just read uh, in verse 1, it says the gospel of God. Okay. It's also called the gospel of our salvation. It's called somewhere the gospel of peace. It is called the gospel of the kingdom. It is called in another place the glorious gospel. In another place, it is called the gospel of God's grace. 
But the most common name given to the good news is this. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is all about Jesus. And John the Baptizer, who's one of the first gospel preachers in a 400-year period where no one was preaching the gospel, and then John the Baptizer rocks up, okay? He preached a very simple message. He said, I want you to change the way you think because God's kingdom is really close. The, the, the rule of God is within reach. It's at hand is the fancy old way of saying it. The kingdom of God is within reach. And that is a very conceptual message. So for the conceptual people, they're like, oh yeah, I get that, cool, that's great. The kingdom of God is within reach. But then he grounded it in reality when he pointed to Jesus. And he said, right there is the one who will take away the sin of the world. You see, the reason that God's dominion is within reach, it's only because of Jesus who takes away sin. The only way we can enter heaven, the only way that we uh, have the right to experience heaven is because Jesus takes away our sin. It only makes sense. The kingdom within reach only makes sense because Jesus takes away sin. And then he said a second thing. He said, Jesus is the one that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Because experiencing heaven is not just a one day when I leave this body experience. It can be a now experience. Okay, We can experience heaven. We can enforce heaven, the rule of God on the earth, because the same one who takes away our sin is the same one who baptizes us with Holy Spirit. What's the point, Chad? The point is, the gospel is good news only because Jesus makes it possible. Everything about him is good news. That's why we say the gospel is far more than his death, his resurrection, his teaching. Okay? The gospel is about the person of Jesus. Alex brought that up before. It's all about him. This year, 2020, it's going to be very common for pastors to get up the first week of February when school goes back okay, and say, 2020, here's our vision for the year. Well, around here, our vision doesn't change. Because vision means, what are you looking at? What's your picture of a preferred future? And our vision has been the same for 17 years. Our vision is Jesus. He is what we see. He is what we want to be looking at. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the one who started up things, and the finisher of our faith. It is all about him. The gospel is all about Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. let's keep going. You're moving very well. Verse 5. We'll do these ones fast. Through him, we received grace, empowerment, and apostleship. It's another way of saying authority, okay? To call all the nations to the obedience that comes from faith. All the nations. Come on, say all. The next thing, whatever, number four, you need to know about the gospel is that it is for all people. I didn't grow up in church. This whole Jesus thing isn't for me, is not for me. Nah, yes, he is. He is for you. Well, hang on, I'm Asian, and so I, I, the whole Christian thing's not for me because that's a Western thing. Nah, the gospel is for you. Hang on, this is my back. Nah, the gospel is for all. Jesus came for all, and all nations are called to come to him.
Now, this was a really powerful thing for Paul the Apostle to say because, as I said right at the start, he grew up in a culture that was very patriotic. When you were a Jew in the first century, I tell you what, you basically stuck with your own in many ways, all right? And Paul was a Jew's Jew. He was a true blue Jew's Jew. He, he literally he called himself that. That's not me coming up with him in Philippians. He said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew of Hebrews, Jews, Jew, all right? He was absolutely patriotic. In fact, in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, he says, I weep for my own countrymen. I love the people of my own race. How many of you know there's nothing wrong with a bit of patriotism? Yeah? Come on, Aussies, come on. Come on. Go down the beach on Australia Day. Raise a flag. Listen to Jimmy Barnes. Just do it, for goodness sake. It's okay to be patriotic, especially when you live in the best country in the world. And Paul was very patriotic about his own people, but he had a revelation that, hang on, this message that I have is not just for my people. This is for those who are from different cultures that I might be culturally a bit uncomfortable with, but I will inconvenience myself because I know the message of Jesus is for all. Jesus as well was very patriotic. There's a moment where he looked over the city of Jerusalem, which is basically the capital of the Jewish people at the, top, well, at the time it is today as well. And he looked over Jerusalem and he wept for them. He, he cried. He's like, I love this people, this people, my people. <laughs> it's like he said, I want to be like a mother, mother hen that just wraps my arms around them. That's what I want to do with these people. I love the people of my own ethnicity. I love my own countrymen. And yet that same Jesus went to the temple and when he saw people trading there with tables and doves and pigeons and buying and selling stuff, he made a whip, he kicked the tables over, he whipped, cracked that whip and he drove people out. And the reason he did that was not because he had a short temper. The reason he did that, the book of Mark tells us, he says the reason he did that is because as the scriptures say, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, all people. And if you read the story carefully, you know that when Jesus did that, it was in the, what they used to call the outer court. This was the area where non-Jewish people were allowed to come and worship. Okay? There was a bit of segregation going on, as I explained before. A bit of segregation, but non-Jewish people were allowed to travel, and they were allowed to come, and they were allowed to buy doves and pigeons and other sacrificial animals. Don't get turned off. It was the culture of 2,000 years ago. Get used to it. And they would come, and that was the area that non-Jewish people were allowed to worship in. And yet here they are, buying and selling, stopping non-Jewish people from worshipping. It is okay to buy and sell stuff. But they should have just done it outside the walls, because by doing it there, they were stopping non-Jewish people from worshipping God. It was too distracting. Too much else going on. So Jesus said, you are stopping non other nations from coming here and worshipping me. And so what drove his passion that day was a desire to see all nations worship the God of Israel. Okay? The good news of God is for all people. He is the God of the nations. This verse also tells us, verse 5, not only is the gospel for all nations, but receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul was calling people to the obedience that comes from faith. Isn't that an interesting way to describe Christianity? What are you calling people to, Paul? Well, I'm calling people to obey God. 
Obedience is not a dirty word. I'm calling people to obey God, but it's an obedience that is motivated or comes from the place of faith. The Christian life, the gospel life, is the life of obedience that is motivated by faith in God's goodness and in God's nature and in God's character. I obey because I believe God is who he says he is. Religion, by and large, is the life of obedience that's motivated by fear. Because if I don't do the right thing, God's going to get me. The gospel is obeying God because he's so darn good, how could I not? He has been so good to me that I can trust him no matter what he says. I know he's good. He's so good. I can trust him. He knows what's best for me because I'm a bit of a dum-dum. He's, he's a smarter than me. Okay, He's a smarter than me. Eh? So I know he knows what's best and he wants what's best. And so I obey him because I believe he's good. I live my life freely obeying him. Religion says you better obey or God will kill you, curse you, cut you off. I obey because I'm bleep scared. This is not what Jesus has called us to. He has called us to a life of obedience, but it's a life of obedience in response to how awesomely good he's been to us. The obedience that comes from faith. And so one of the best things that you can do is remind yourself of how good God has been to you. Remind yourself of the wonder of the cross and what he's done. Because the more I know God's goodness, the more I know how much he has given me, the more I can trust him to obey when he calls me to take big steps of risk. Yeah? I can take steps of risk. I can take steps of faith because I'm walking in his goodness. I know that he is good. And so this is what happened when Jesus comes over to some guy, I think his name was Simon. Was it Simon? I think it was Simon. Comes to Simon's house one day and a woman's there, washes his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, do you know why she loves me so much? I came to your house, mate, and you didn't even you know, get out the hand sanitizer and wash my hands. She's done it with her tears. And the reason she loves me so much is because she's been forgiven much. She knows how much I've forgiven her. And knowing how awesomely good I've been to her, it has motivated in her an incredible act of generous worship. God has called us to the life of obedience that comes from faith. The gospel empowers that. This verse also says that it is for the glory of his name. To all, uh, verse 6, verse 5. says, Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience from faith for his name's sake. The ultimate goal of all gospel proclamation and demonstration is that Jesus' name would be honoured. If you're visiting here today, and you forget my name when you walk out the door, I don't care. Because I'm not here for the glory of the Chad. We're here for the glory of Jesus. His name is the name that really matters. And lastly, last thing I'll leave you with is this. The gospel gives us a whole new identity. Verse 6 and 7 again says, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those 
at Bayside Church who are loved by God and called his holy people. We are holy people because of who and what Jesus has done. We belong to him. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And we are loved by God. My name is Chad. And I am loved by God. My name is Tiffany. And I am loved by God. My name is Joan. And I am loved by God. To all who are loved by God. Can you take that identity as your own? What a beautiful thing to be able to say. You see, the wonder of this book is that, the book of Romans, is that it starts off talking about God's gospel. But as you read on, it gets very personal. And I'd like to give you a summary of the rest of the book. In fact, why don't you, just to help me, I'm going to turn to the last verse of Romans. And if you stand to your feet, then I'll do this quicker. Romans 16. Listen to this. After Paul's brief introduction and explanation of his revelation of salvation, he goes throughout this letter to teach about deprivation in chapters 1 and 2. The good news of redemption, propitiation and substitution in chapter 3. He introduces the doctrine of justification in chapter 4 and goes on to speak of reconciliation, regeneration, sanctification, adoption and glorification in chapters 5 to 8. In chapters 9 to 10, he discusses predestination and election, but also the necessary confession, cooperation and participation with God's invitation to salvation, climaxing at the culmination of chapter 11 with an ejaculation of praise and adoration Paul begins chapter 12 with an invitation to reflection and contemplation, resulting in an exhortation to consideration of a life of consecration. This then leads him to an articulation of a vast array of lifestyle applications and gospel implications in chapters 12 through to 15, until finally here in chapter 16, after a few salutations and personal commendations, Paul closes his letter with the following exclamation. I'm going to read the closing verses of Romans. And as I do, I want you to notice how similar it is to what we've just read in the opening passage. In fact, every element that we've looked at in the opening verses is here in the closing ones. Topped and tailed, chapter 16 says this, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever and ever. Amen. Can you see them all in there? Can you see that how in chapter 1 he spoke about God The gospel being proclaimed for God's name. He says exactly the same thing in chapter 16. 
He talks about the gospel being a history of all the prophetic writings in chapter 1. He says exactly the same thing in chapter 16. He says in chapter 1, the gospel is all about Jesus. He says there as he closes off, it is all about Jesus. He says in chapter 1, this is the gospel of the obedience that comes from faith. He says exactly the same thing here as in closing chapters. In the opening verse, he talks about the gospel being for all people. And here at the end, he says, this is the gospel I proclaim everywhere that I go. But there is just one thing he changes. In chapter 1, he says, this is God's gospel. Here in chapter 16, top line, he says, this is my gospel. Where the God of all history becomes my God. Where the Christ of the universe, the Lord and Saviour of all men, becomes my Lord and my Saviour. Where the Spirit who hovered over the waters of all creation, the universe becomes the Holy Spirit that lives in me. See, the gospel is not just a universal message. The gospel is for you. God does not just love all of us. He loves each of us so that his gospel becomes my gospel. And I don't know everyone here today, but I want to encourage you that this year we walk more and more into the conviction of who God is and what he has done for all is who he is and what he has done for me to own these truths as my own so that like the Apostle Paul, I can say, this is his gospel. But at the end of the day, this has also become my gospel. I own it. It is mine. Father, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice that no matter who we are and where we are at in our relationship with you, that you would stir and secure our hearts in the glorious truths of your eternal gospel, that we can say, the Saviour is my Saviour. The Lord is my Lord. We worship you this morning. I worship you this morning. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day. Bye.